following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. There are poignant moments in books you read and sometimes movies that you watch, and I've read a couple of biographies as well as seen the movie Chariots of Fire about Eric Liddell, a missionary athlete, uh, came out of the 20s and uh, died uh, right in the middle of World War II. But amazingly, uh, the poignant moment that I always remember, I recall it to you several times, is that he's in an early race in Scotland and one of the other international runners literally pushes him off the track and knocks him down. And he could have laid there and just laid there. He could have pounded his fists in the ground and kicked his feet like having a tantrum. He could have actually ran up and get right in the face of the official of the race and whined about the injustice and the unfairness of being pushed down by another runner. Or he could have done what I would have done, which is run across the track and cleat the offending party But he didn't do any of that. He just rolled right back to his feet, was now last place in this particular race, and won that race. That's the kind of athlete he was and the kind of character he had. But that always raises the question with me concerning myself as well as all of you. And that is, how are you when life is unfair, when life is unjust, when it's somebody literally pushes you down? in a way that you feel the consequences and it's very unjust and unfair. Life is filled with conflict. Life is filled with unfairness and injustices. One of the greatest challenges that parents face is protecting their children, but also preparing them for a life that is going to be unfair. Right? We live on a planet that is filled with that. You'll be slammed by friends. You'll be shunned by classmates. You'll be attacked by a brother in Christ. You'll be maligned by a sister. You'll be hurt by a family member that you thought you could trust. You're crushed by unloving parents. You're worn down by a spouse. You're defeated by massive failure on your part. You're devastated by the betrayal of a friend. Attacked for your convictions, even persecuted for your faith. What do you do? When that happens, when that happens to me, I find myself sometimes bristling. Anybody with me? When it's unjust, unfair, my first immediate emotional reaction is, you know, wanting to defend myself. Now, I know that you can talk to Dr. Phil and he'll have lots of ideas for what to do. You could watch The View and, of course, that will warp your mind and crush you for life. Or you could even talk to Judge Judy. She's very just and offers strong advice, but... Really, there's only one person that can teach you what to do. Your creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, knows what to do, and he teaches you what to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you're new with us, we're working our way through Matthew chapter 5, verse by verse, and 6, and 7, and we are in chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, the last two Beatitudes. And what Christ is describing here. And what he does is to tell you what he does in his children's life internally at salvation. 
he describes the transformation that he does to those who are born again and how we live then as his children in a hostile world. You know what we do? This is shocking. And everybody's mouth would be dropping when he gives these verses and this part of the sermon. We bring warring people together. That's what Christians do. We endure incredible injustice. That's what Christians do. And that's what he teaches. So read aloud with me with some gusto and vigor, verses 9 through 12 from your outline. Let's read it together. Are you ready? Everybody's shocked, so don't be shocked. Here we go. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christ has already taught us, look at your outline, happiness, true happiness, blessedness, comes from, verse 3, the awareness of your spiritual bankruptcy. The awareness of your deep grief over sin. That's verse 4. Verse 5, the awareness of your dependence on God. Verse 6, the awareness of your desperation to be righteous. Verse 7, your life of mercy extended to the undeserving. And verse 8, those who have been made new in the heart. That's the last couple weeks. And now, of the eight total Beatitudes, we just looked at six, the last two we studied today... And they are found in verse 9, for one, number 7, and then verses 8, 9, uh, excuse me, verses 10, 11, and 12, and that's number 8, and that's happiness comes from verse 9, the internal passion to be a peacemaker, and verses 10 through 12, happiness comes in the midst of persecution, aware that you're living for Christ now, but will be rewarded eternity forever. Now, this is going to test you today. This is going to test what you really value today, who you really are today. Do you really live for eternity? Do you believe that you'll live forever in eternity and that this life is just a small blip on the radar? Too many who claim Christ run away and hide when there's conflict. They ignore the issue. They avoid the people who are in the conflict. They excuse their involvement with many, many, many excuses. But Jesus says, run to them, don't run away, and be a peacemaker. And today he's going to tell us too many Christians hide when there's heat or discomfort or pushback or inconvenience or persecution. They move to Texas. They move to Idaho, Tennessee. They isolate themselves from Christians. They get off the grid but Jesus says this, this is what's so shocking, rejoice and be glad, be glad in the midst of persecution. Is that shocking to you? It should be. So let's look at both of them. The last two, number seven in your outline is happiness comes from the internal passion to be a peacemaker. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Peace is massively understood. People in our world, are they seeking peace? Sure they are. They seek it with drugs. They seek it with alcohol. 
They seek it with, you know, physical pleasure. They seek it with drowning themselves in activity and relationship. And yet the only place that they can get true peace is a totally different source. You can only find peace when it's given to you by the author of peace. That's the only way you can get it as a human being. Let me say it again. You can only find peace by getting it from the author of peace. God is a God of peace. And the world began in peace, but then peace was broken in Genesis 3 when mankind, womankind, sinned in the garden. And at the cross of Christ, though, peace became a reality again. And so now you can be peace in heart if you submit to Christ and respond to what he did in salvation. And someday soon, Christ will come again, and his title when he comes again is the Prince of Peace. That's right. And as he establishes a kingdom of peace, that will lead to an eternal age of peace. Peace is one of the main topics of Scripture. It is listed over 400 times in your Bible, both Old and New Testament peace. This is a big deal to the Lord. But you can only find it when you turn to Christ. Now, I know some of you right now, and you're not going to say it, you're not going to show it on your face, but under your breath right now, you're whispering, there's no peace in the world, right? There's no peace in my heart. You were driving to church today. There's no peace in this car, right? It's true. You could sarcastically say, peace is that glorious moment in history when everybody stops to reload. You get it. Okay, I get it. We never have known in our history as a nation, peace. If you want to debate that, once you include the unjust Indian wars, you know that we have never not known war. And the fault lies clearly with people and fallen angels. Let me make this really clear. God is not at war with you. You or mankind is at war with God. And until that war stops, there will be no peace. Until that war is resolved, there's not going to be a peace for all mankind. The solution to the problems of society is not social. It's spiritual. You know that. People must be first transformed by God in order to experience the peace of God. And to stop their war with God. To be at peace with one another. And offer salvation as the path of peace. And to be able to help believers live in peace and become a peacemaker. Now, you and I are not shocked that people have a very difficult time getting along, right? And you shouldn't be shocked to see that people have no ability to get along with each other. People have breakdowns and family breakups and family fights and fights at school and war and protest. Sean Farrell and I were traveling back from G3, the conference in Atlanta airport. We're walking along a corridor that goes just forever and there's offshoots off it and right at the intersection, hundreds of people going right and left and down the hallway and there's a woman standing right in the middle screaming as loud as she can, profanity after profanity. And she goes, someone tell me where I need to go. I don't know where to go. And blankety, blankety, blankety. It's screaming. Everybody's just walking by. Why is that? She has no peace. Plus, she was a little loopy. Okay, so understand. Christians have peace. 
If you're a believer, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your what? Your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now again, don't misunderstand the nature of peace. It is not the absence of conflict. It is the addition of righteousness. Peace comes from the presence of Christ and His righteousness who brings about right relationships with God, with others, with your own heart. Peace is not merely stopping a battle. That's not peace. It's creating the righteousness that brings two parties together who then can love one another genuinely from the heart. That's true peace. Peacemakers don't merely bring and call a truce. No, they establish peace where the all strife is forgotten and everybody embraces one another. There's a big difference between peace and a truce. A truce is when people put down their guns and don't shoot at each other for a while. That's what truce is. They stop acting on their grudge internally, but they're not fighting, but they're still burning with hate, waiting for an opportunity to start fighting again. Peace is about heart change. Get this down. Where the hate is gone, Thoughts of revenge are over. Unity exists because now there is a passion to do what's right and righteous and love your enemy. Why should we want this? Because God is one and not in conflict. And He prays, the Lord, that we as Christians would be one like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. Unity is massively valuable and esteemed by God because it is His attribute. It is who He is. And we dishonor Him when we're not. So to be a peacemaker, you don't isolate people. You bring them together so that they can see each other and come to love one another from the heart. If you separate them, the issue issue often smolders and gets worse. Uh, True story. Little boy is with his parents. He's, I don't know, seven or eight. And he's in divorce court. And he's holding mommy's hand and daddy's hand. And the judge is starting to fire some really intense questions at the mom and the dad. And it's as if the little boy had God's timing down. But he was led to force his parents to hold hands. And he made them hold hands and he put his hands over their hands. At the moment the judge is asking all the penetrating questions, tears come to their eyes. They look at each other and go, what in the world are we doing? He brought them together. I was a junior high pastor for a few years, and I had an incredible junior high staff. They were amazing, but there were two gals at one point on that staff who didn't get along very well. Now, sometimes that happens in ministry, right? There's people that you prefer, and other people are like, oh, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, there, there's a little tension there. Well, these two were feeling it and, and popping off about once a month, you know, little, little statements. So I started talking to them individually and encouraging them and praying for them and loving them, and, and it got you know, worse, and it kept manifesting itself, and finally, I decided to do something, and you know me, I'm really subtle, right, and, and just not in your face at all, and so I just got to them, and I opened all the scriptures up that we're going to study today about being a peacemaker, being one, being unified, and then I gave them a choice, you know, just a kind, gentle prodding. I said, go into that room, and come out, and you're going to be at peace with each other now and forevermore, or you're off my junior high staff. And they were motivated. 
90 minutes later, no joke, 90 minutes later, they came out and there was never an issue again. They made peace. That's what peacemaker is all about. True peace only comes, though, write this down, when truth reigns. God never honors the false teacher or the apostate because they don't function by truth. He never esteems them and, and says you know, that they have peace because they don't function by truth. But peacemakers are going to have to function by truth, and that means you're going to have to sometimes confront with truth to be a peacemaker. Because truth is the path of true peace. We can't Rodney King it. Why can't we all get along? You know, just feel it somehow. No, we can only find peace in Christ and only find peace according to the word of God, the truth. You have to honor the truth. But God is the God of peace. He has made peace for us through Christ who reconciled himself to us. And if we're in Christ, we're going to want to reconcile other people. We are. What's he say in verse 9? Blessed are the what? peacemakers. This is what you do, who you are, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Let me help you understand. It involves your relationship with the lost. It involves your relationship with yourself, your own heart, and it involves your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're a peacemaker, it involves everybody you know, lost, yourself, as well as your brothers and sisters. Let me tell you how it works out. Number one, first, If you are a peacemaker, you believe that evangelism is one of your responsibilities. Evangelism. Why? Because the lost are at war with God. Amen? They are. They are at war with God. They are defiant sinners. They are going their own way, and they need to make things right. So you desire to make peace between lost friends and God. You proclaim the gospel, the good news. You tell them that Christ is the only way to depend on Christ alone by faith, to turn from your sin in repentance. You call them to trust in his work on the cross when he took all of God's punishment for your sin upon himself and to remind you that they cannot save themselves, that it's a gift from God. Encourage them to cry out to God to change their heart. You call them to stop their independent war against God and find peace and now claim, Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, you have what? Peace with God. Number two, being a peacemaker is going to splash back on you. If you really believe that being a peacemaker is what God wants you to do, which I believe if you're a Christian you do, then it's going to cause your heart to change. If you're one who blames others, you'll stop blaming others. If you're one who is walking around being a victim, it's always everybody else's fault, you're going to stop doing that. You're going to see yourself as the problem more often than not. You're not going to carry resentment. I meet way too many Christians who carry grudges. And if you're a peacemaker, you're going to deal with grudges and always being offended, what they did, what they didn't do, what they missed, etc., and seeking revenge. God gives you a position of peace that works out into a practical peace, and it comes from your heart. Your heart is going to change if you're a peacemaker. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, in you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, and do not let it be fearful. Thirdly, being a peacemaker will cause you to help your brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, not just the lost, not just your own heart, but your brothers and sisters. You're going to see, I want to help them to get along. Not just with me, but with each other. 
Romans 14, 19, so then we pursue the things which make for what? Peace and the building up of one another. Take a look in your outline, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, look at it. Pursue what? Peace with how many men? All, that's saved and unsaved. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Listen, go to them, share your weakness, share your struggles with sin. And say, it's right that we would, as fellow sinners, get along before the Lord and help them to come. It may not be right away. It may be that the hurt is deep. But there's going to be progress towards being at peace with one another. Being made right with one another. Because when that happens, when you show your transformed heart of peace and become a peacemaker, looks what happens. Jesus lays it out in verse 9 at the end of it. What's he say? For they shall be called, what? Sit right over that family. I mean, what greater title can there be that to be the son of the living God? The daughter of the living God. Your family, right? You belong. Listen, your eternal family is secure. Amen? Oh, come on. You are going to live in that family for how long? Forever. That's right. That's right. I'm a Mueller. My family is, is, is actually amazingly special. The vast majority of our memories are sweet. Even in the toughest times, we've always been there for each other. But nothing, nothing compares to being a child of the king. Nothing. That's the family you need to belong to. How can you tell? Well, the son of a living God is one who is in a relationship with him and with one another. Because God is personal, he's eternal, he's intimate, and he's loving for those who are his own, and they are at peace with him, and they are family. They're the son of God, the daughter of God. And as a son of God or daughter of God, Christ bears your weaknesses and sins. Are you going to pay for your sins if you're in Christ, yes or no? No. Say that one more time. Are you going to pay for your sins if you're in Christ? No, because Jesus paid for it. And he said, it's finished. You're not going to. Christ accepts your imperfect service. Does that cause you delight? Come on, people. I mean, I would be massively discouraged if that somehow he wouldn't accept me, even filled with the Spirit. Sometimes I'm wondering, can anything I do actually be totally clean? And yet, he accepts my service. Done in the Spirit. Christ provides for your needs. He shields you from danger. Can you imagine if he didn't do that? Christ works everything in your life together for good. Your family. Listen, parents, do you run to your kids when they're in danger? God does too. He knows. But Jesus isn't through cleaning out your internal person. He lastly says in the Beatitudes here, Number eight, happiness comes in the midst of persecution, aware that you're living for Christ now and will be rewarded later, verses 10 through 12. This is the eighth and final beatitude. Write it down. Happy are the harassed. Okay? Verse 10. It states it. Verse 11 and 12. Explain it. Verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil lying against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who are the persecuted? Listen, the context demands it's those who have been beatitude. 
Okay? They have been born again. They have a new internal person. They're the ones who are blessed with the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 9. So verse 10 says, those who have been persecuted. Now persecuted means three different things and all very similar. It's to pursue. It means in the Greek language, someone pursuing you in order to do you harm. Uh, It's like chasing away. It's like you chase a dog away that's going to do you harm. Uh, Finally, the Greek also persecuted means to treat you in an evil manner. There are evil people and they want to treat you in an evil manner. My friends, persecution is on the rise in the United States of America. It is. Prepare your life and your heart. You say, Chris, you know, privately, is there any way that I can avoid persecution? And the answer is yes. There is. You can. Here's Chris's sure file formula. You might not like it, but this is how you avoid persecution. Start approving the world's morals. Sex on demand, lying is necessary, there's no gender, living for yourself, approve of all that. Next, live like everybody else does on Instagram and TikTok, take lots of promiscuous selfies, post them, and incessantly talk about yourself, okay? Do that. Don't tell people they're lost. Don't tell them they're sinners, and never tell them that there's a hell that awaits them. Don't ever say that. And that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Don't proclaim that. And next, make sure instead of separating yourself from the world and living uniquely different like you're loving and you're joyful and you're peaceful and you're heart-driven, don't live that way, but show you approve of sin and the world by laughing at their jokes, enjoying their entertainment, smiling when they mock God, live immoral, and above all things, laugh and enjoy it when they use the Lord's name in vain. Then you'll never be persecuted. Okay? Those are Chris's list of how to avoid persecution comes right out of first Fleshalonians, okay? <laughs> if you live godly, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Oh, no, no, no. Say it with vigor. Will be what? Persecuted. Look back at verses 10 to 12. Uh, let me give you one translation. It says this. I'm going to summarize verses 10 through 12 in one sentence. Take delight and be happy when people revile you, persecute you, speak evil of you, and lie about you. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't. That's like saying be sad when people are good to you or get mad when people compliment you. How should we understand verses 10 through 12? Well, the problem is, you know my little translation I just gave you? It left out two phrases. It left out for righteousness sake. It left out because of me, Jesus says. You focus on for righteousness sake and because of Christ, you put those phrases back into that statement and then it begins to make sense. Jesus is telling you that living a life that reflects the beatitudes and the righteousness of God and living a life for Christ, motivated by the Spirit of God, conforming to Christ, is an invitation to be persecuted. You'd think that lost people would applaud a beatitude-manifesting Christian, but they don't. They do not applaud that. They actually nailed the perfect example of the beatitudes to the cross. 
John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. John 16, the things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. But in the world you're going to have what? Tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. Why persecute you for righteousness? Let's go to verse 10, for the sake of righteousness. Listen carefully. Because by your righteous words, by your righteous living, your Christ-like living, you're seeking to be obedient to the word of God, you expose their sin. And they don't like it. They're suppressing the truth. When you live by the truth, it surfaces their suppression and shows them what they're really like. Because your Savior is the only way to be saved, and all their religious efforts will not save them. They need the righteousness given to them by Christ, and that hurts their pride. They think they can earn their own way. They think they're good enough. Because of your faith, it gives you love and joy and peace and relationship and intimacy and freedom all things they don't have internally. They may show little images of it externally, but it's not theirs internally at all. And because Christ makes you righteous by faith as a gift, but they are trying to earn their righteousness by works, are you getting it why it offends them? Why they don't like you? By living out a transformed, born-again, beatitude-loving life, you attack people's pride. You expose their guilt you remind them that they are accountable to God. You're living accountable to God, and as you live that way, they don't like that. You prove that judgment is coming. You show them that Christ is not merely the only way, but not only a better way, but the best way, and they hate it. Is it worth it? Verse 10. Look what it says, verse 10. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You pay a price for living for Christ. Persecution. If you come into God's kingdom, you will suffer. But living under his rule on earth now and living under his rule in the future, thousand-year kingdom, then eternally with Christ will result in massive blessing for you. Massive. And all that is yours. Can you imagine this? Think about this. Think about living in the kingdom for a minute, okay, on earth with Christ, living under his rule as he physically rules this planet in Jerusalem, you're all around the world. You're in a glorified body. You're in a perfect Edenic environment. You're never struggling with sin again. All the blessings of being one with Christ and one with each other, you have all of that. While representing Christ, you're ruling, at least I am, over Maui. And that, does that sound good to you? Now, you know, some of you have Hemet. I get that. But for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus began the Beatitudes in verse 3 with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now verse 8, he concludes the Beatitudes with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He wants you to know this is secure. When you live under his rule, this is what you get. You are blessed now and you will be blessed forever under his rule. Do you affirm that God rules? Amen? He reigns. He is in charge. This world's crazy. You're looking at it going, this is nuts. But God is in charge. Every detail. He's working all things to his conclusion. He does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. He is the sovereign one who reigns. He is in charge. And when you live under his rule, 
You are blessed, but you're also game for persecution because the world will hate you. And you say, why? Jesus adds, verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Happy are the harassed. Verse 11, look at that word insulted. When people insult you, insult means to give verbal abuse. It's literally to cast vicious, mocking comments and throw words of abuse at an opponent. That's what it means to insult. Not only that, but verse 11, happy are the harassed. Look what he says, they're going to speak evil of you. Look at the words. He says, falsely say all kinds of what? Evil against you. To falsely say is to speak evil. They're going to lie about you. They're going to figure out how to cancel you. They're going to talk behind your back to destroy you. You know how the demons do it? Let me tell you. They will bring up your past. They will find the flaws and weaknesses of your character. And every one of you have some flaws. And they will expand those flaws. And they will blow them up so that that's all people see about you. They'll misquote you. Then they'll exploit their lies about you. Keep throwing them out until some of them stick in order to justify their abuse to destroy you. They will find everything that's wrong with you, make it huge, and justify the way that they can destroy you. That's what they do. Now to revile, in verse 11, is to harshly say things to you. But to speak evil of you is to say things about you. Unjust, unfair. And the Lord's pointed, the lost of this world, and by the way, sometimes the lost parade in churches, and they will act against you, insult you, lie about you. And Jesus repeats the term persecution there in verse 11. Do you see it? He says it again, persecute you to remind you that eventually it's going to go beyond words to hurting, to wounding, to rejecting, and even torture and possible killing. Some of you have already experienced harsh separations, insults, and evil speak. And it's been from family, or from school, or from work, or with friends because of your convictions. And there have already been cases in the U.S. of economic loss, freedoms that have been lost, even imprisonment in the U.S.A. now, and coming someday, maybe soon, economic pain and physical pain leading to torture and martyrdom all, in, all against Christ and all for Christ's sake. Don't be surprised. Listen, you know where it's going to come from? The way that for 2,000 plus years, persecution has come from government and from the false church. Those two places. Don't be shocked. It's coming. Be ready. And when it happens, you know what you're supposed to do? To really give glory to God? Are you ready? Right now, smile. Come on, a big smile. Give me some teeth. That's our response. Not from the external, but from the internal. See, what do you mean? Look what he says in verse 11 and 12. He says, verse 12, rejoice and be glad. He commands us. Those are both commands to rejoice and glad. Your response to persecution is not to retreat, not to hide, not to blame others, but to rejoice and be glad. Rejoice, write it down, is the smile of the heart with joy. The smile of the heart with joy and then be glad 
I looked this up in three different Greek dictionaries. They all said the same thing. This is shocking to me. It says, literally, to be glad is to skip and jump with happy excitement. You get persecuted and you're supposed to go, woohoo, okay? That's what he's saying. And it's a command. If you're not doing that, you're untrusting, you're disobedient. It's, it's what the apostles did when they were flogged. And when they were flogged, their skin was ripped off their backs. And they walked out of that council chamber in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, and what did they say? Went on their way in the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Wow. That's us. Why? Because, beep, this is the world. This is our time. And heaven is how long? Forever. Right? Now, why should you and I rejoice? Why would any of us be glad and do a happy dance over persecution? Jesus kind of gives three clues here, listening to the audience. And they're at the Sea of Galilee. They're all taking this in. They're kind of shocked by this. First is persecution is evidence. It's evidence that you're the real deal. It's evidence that you are truly a born-again believer. God promised all who live godly will be persecuted. Therefore, when you are, you're celebrating and verifying you're a genuine child of God. But another reason to skip and jump and be happy excitement over persecution is, secondly, reward awaits you in heaven. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Both commands. For your reward in heaven is what? It's a little bit. It's a tiny. You get a quarter. You lost a tooth. There you go. Uh Uh-uh. It's what? Mega. Great. It's great. We know this from the scripture that when we face Christ, we're not judged for our sin. We are what? We're judged for reward. All your sin was taken care of. We're judged for reward. He rewards us. Our life matters for eternity. It does. It makes a difference in eternity. It does. Our present life on this planet is a vapor, but heaven is forever. Say it with me forever. Ready? Forever. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Come on, people. Listen to what Christ is saying. Don't allow your budget, your calendar, to look like this life is all there is. You need to start canceling your earthly commitments that you can and start prioritizing your heavenly investments. You got to do it. What you do for Christ now, especially in suffering for Him, will make an amazing difference in reward in the future. Lay up treasure in heaven. Serve Him weekly. Serve in secret, love him, your reward is great. And then lastly, thirdly, be glad when persecuted. Why? Because you find yourself in very special company. Every hero of the faith that you love, that you've read about, have suffered persecution. Verse 12, that's what he says to these new believers on the slope there. He says, for in the same way they persecuted your heroes, the prophets who were before you. When we suffer for Christ, we're an awesome company. This is the club that every Christian is afraid to join, but wants to join. Uh, John MacArthur says it this way, quote, To be afflicted for righteousness' sake is to stand in the ranks of the prophets. Persecution is a mark of our faithfulness, just as it was a mark of the prophets' faithfulness. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt we belong to God because we're experiencing the same reaction from the world that the prophets experienced. They were sawn in half. They were burned to death, and yet they rejoiced. If you're a genuine Christian, you'll want to become a peacemaker 
But in doing so, as you live out not just that attribute and that beatitude, but you'll also, as you live all the beatitudes, you open yourself up to being persecuted. But all of it results in blessing, in internal happiness that'll blow you away, that can never be taken away from you, and great eternal reward. Is that you? Let me take this home with some thoughts that I hope will make an impact in your heart and life. Take it home, letter A, genuine Christian, embrace why you will be persecuted. Embrace why. Let's go through that again. John Piper lists some reasons why Christians will be persecuted. I have modified them a great deal. So here they are. If you cherish moral purity, your life will be an attack on people's love for unbridled sex. When you cherish that, that's condemning them. If you embrace discipline with alcohol, then your life will be a statement against those who often get drunk. If you pursue self-control, your life will indict and expose and make them feel bad over their excesses and lack of self-control. If you live simply and happily, your life will show the folly of indulging in luxury. If you walk humbly with your God, your life will expose the evil of pride. If you are punctual and you are thorough in your dealings, your life will lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you speak with compassion to people, your life will reveal their callousness. If you are earnest your life will make the flippant look superficial instead of clever. And if you're spiritually minded, your life will display the worldly mindedness of people who are around you. Listen, they're going to accuse you. They are going to try to cancel you. They will lie about you. They'll bring up your bad choices that you've made because you're not perfect. They'll expect you to live perfect. They'll reproach you and judge you for judging them. But we who are saved, forgiven, cleansed, and made new will keep on sharing the gospel of transforming grace. Amen? That's your mission, friends. Even though they do bring this all up, we're going to give them the truth and we're going to rejoice and be glad. Rejoice. Paul said it so well in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents who might persecute you, which is a sign of destruction for them, but what? salvation for you. It shows that you're genuinely saved, and that too from God. For to you it has been gifted, granted, blessed for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but to what? Suffer in His sake, and for His sake, in His name. Wow. Letter B. Genuine Christian, love the Lord of the Beatitudes. Why do we love the Beatitudes? Simply because they give us a portrait of Jesus Christ. You get that, right? And, and what he's doing in us to conform us to his image so we see what we're going to become. No one sympathized with spiritual beggars more than Christ, verse 3. No one grieved over sin, not his own, more than Christ, verse 4. No one was more meek in submitting to God's will and word than Christ was in verse 5. No one hungered and thirsted for righteousness more than Christ in verse 6. No one showed more mercy to others than Christ in verse 7. No one was more pure in heart than Jesus Christ in verse 8. No one sought peace between God and man as well as between people more than Christ in verse 9. And no one, 
suffered unjust persecution and just plain evil more than Jesus Christ in verses 10 through 12. Grow in your love for Christ. See these as representative of him, and I know you do, but can I say with Paul, excel still more. Use the Beatitudes. Use your own failure in them and your growth in them to love Christ more, to see him as the example of this that you're pursuing, to be more merciful, to thirst for righteousness, to be meek, to be grieved over your sin. Do that. Let him motivate you to sweeter communion and remembering who he is and what he's done for you every day. And let her see, would you, genuine Christians, proclaim the message of peace in a world of turmoil? Genuine Christians. In his book, Peace Child, John Richardson tells of his long struggle to bring the gospel to the cannibalistic and headhunting uh, Sawi uh, tribe in Indonesia. Don couldn't find a way to make the people understand the gospel message, this primitive tribe, and especially the significance of Christ's atoning death on the cross. MacArthur writes about this, and he says the Sawi villages were constantly fighting among themselves because, and because treachery and revenge and murder were highly honored in their culture, there seemed no hope of peace. Listen, when Don told them the story of Christ's death and how Judas betrayed him, Judas became their hero. That's the Sawis. And he was beside himself. How can I tell them the gospel? The tribe, he discovered, had a legendary custom. That if one village gave a baby to the other village, then that would stop all warring between those two villages as long as that child was alive. They called the baby the peace child. The missionary sees that story as an analogy for the reconciling work of Christ. As he began to talk with them, he declared that Christ is God's divine peace child. Christ was, that he suffered and offered to man as a peace child, to mankind. And because Christ lives eternally, his peace would never end. And that was the key that unlocked the gospel to the Sowies. That was it. In a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, many of them believed in Christ and a strong evangelistic church soon developed and peace for the first time came to the Sawi Indians. If the Father is the source of peace, Christ is the manifestation of peace and the Holy Spirit is the agent of peace and the God of peace sent the Prince of Peace to give us the Spirit of Peace and His fruit of peace and there's only going to be peace if we turn to Jesus Christ. There is no peace apart from the God of peace. You've got to turn to Christ. Cry out that he would change your heart so you could turn to repentance and faith and trust he died for your sin and rose from the dead and that is the only way that you and I will ever be at peace with God, with our fellow man, with our fellow brothers and sisters and even in our own heart. Letter D. Genuine Christian, test your salvation only against God's word. Only, would you please bow your heads? Please bow your heads. Just, just put your pen down. Don't worry about putting stuff away. Just close your eyes just for a moment. You can do all the rest later. But listen to me as your heads are down. Your assurance of salvation does not come from you making decisions sometime in the past. Your assurance of salvation, you know it's genuine for Jesus Christ when you live a righteous life, not a perfect life, but a righteous life, faith without works is dead, you will demonstrate Christ through you. How do you get it? Christ transforms your heart internally. 
which results in you living for Christ externally. The Beatitudes are what Christ does to your heart internally. So now, if you are in Christ, you want to please Him. You want to follow Him. You will engage in a local church and be with His people. You'll want to do that. You'll want to be relationally connected. You'll want to obey His Word and follow His truth. And you will even be willing, though a struggle and though painful, to suffer for His sake. Jesus warns those who refuse, those who don't, those who don't manifest Christ, He warns, I never knew you. Father, we pray that you would work in the hearts of your children, that we would manifest a a heart that wants to make peace. And Father, that we would also be those who would be willing to be persecuted with joy. And Father, we pray that if there are any hearts here who don't know you, you begin that process of drawing them to yourself and we'll give you all the praise and all the glory for what you'll do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.